This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Um, so this is my first FWS conference and I've just found it an absolutely brilliant blend of um, depth of teaching, warmth of fellowship and prayer. I've never prayed more at a conference than here. Welcome back to the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss, the director of Church Society, and I'm reporting this week from our Fellowship of Word and Spirit conference, which this year was on the theme of revival. The Fellowship of Word and Spirit conference is committed to reformed theology and its application to the whole of life as we seek to encourage and help each other wrestle with its challenges. We aim for genuine fellowship with plenty of time for spiritual encouragement and prayer, for cultivating friendships old and new, and for resting from the usual frantic pace of ministry. The conference is open to lay people and clergy, and couples are encouraged to come together. Last week, we were exploring the theme of revival in the Bible and in the history of revivals in the world, always with an eye on application for our own day. There were sessions on lessons from the early and medieval church, from the great Victorian evangelical J.C. Ryle, and from Jonathan Edwards, one of the leaders of the Great Awakening in the 18th century. We also had a series of Bible readings on the theme of revival. Following each of the main sessions, I also got a chance to interview the speakers and give time for questions and discussion and prayer groups. So as well as hearing some highlights from the main speakers today, we'll also hear a few snapshots of how people there enjoyed the conference. I mean, this is my first time to FWS and I thoroughly enjoyed um, catching up with um, old friends, um, people that some people who I know only through the screen, um, but um, also making new friends and listening to people in in different ministries uh, up and down our land. It's been a great few days being reminded of God's power and our dependence on him for all that we need. Simon Vibert, formerly Vice-Principal of Wycliffe Hall in Oxford and now a minister in Surrey, led our Bible readings. Here's something of what he had to say. So I guess one of my hopes would be that from the Bible readings over these three days, that they'll inculcate in you and me um, a fresh eagerness to pray. That's the take-home. You know, that we would see prayer as not being the top and tail of our sermon or being the arrow petition that necessarily needs to go up. But we'd actually see prayer alongside the ministry of word and service, but prayer as being the main part of our call. Because I don't know whether this resonates with you at all. I mean, we're fortunate. We've got quite a large staff team at Christchurch, including several of ministers' support. And I do joke with them sometimes because, you know, I think that they they come into their office and do the administration and they just wonder a little bit sometimes what particularly the vicar does when he's out of sight and out of mind. And I say to them, you do realise, don't you, that, you know, when I 
get up into the metaphorical pulpit on a Sunday that I have thought about and prayed about what I'm going to say before I get up to speak. Oh, really? You know, <laughs> a little slightly of a shock. But, but that's part of our calling, isn't it? That hidden work of God where we are prayers and studiers of God's word. And, and friends, you know, I come to conferences like that to get myself reoriented and focused back around particularly prayer as being a key part of my ministry. And I hope that we'll have time to do that together as well as just to speak about it. Revival also has been spoken about a lot in this past year, not least because of the events almost exactly a year ago at Asbury University in Kentucky. And you all know the story, don't you? How uh, students and staff returned to the chapel for 16 consecutive days um, to pray, you know, to come together for, for corporate worship together but mostly to spend time praying. And it went continuously for 16 days. And inevitably, you know, the media turned up, lots of discussions uh, about what was going on. And um, many of you all know John Dixon, the Australian who's now at Wheaton in the States, and he, he was visiting there last week. So I asked him how he was finding things a year on, you know, from this great visitation of God. And I think sensibly, he said that they're not calling it revival, um, but I guess they're calling it an outpouring. And that the lasting impact, bearing in mind it's only 12 months later, the lasting impact so far has been a deep desire for reconciliation between believers and a definite desire to try and overcome the things that divide us, particularly racially. So it is very encouraging to see, you know, that... 16-day work of God having practical implications in the life of the church. And I'm sure that the Welsh revival and the Hebridean revival are going to be on our lips quite a lot in the next couple of days. Um, but given I'm going first, so I can have a first shot at it. Um, 11 o'clock on a Wednesday evening in 1904, a solo voice rang out with a hymn, Here is love, vast as the ocean. Maybe a thousand were in Ebenezer Chapel, all Abba Tilleri. I don't know how you pronounce that name. Sorry about that, if you're Welsh. Um, Evan Roberts has recounted much of what went on in the 1904-1905 revival. And the four things that he said that particularly marked the revival, and I am getting to 2 Chronicles 7.14 in a moment, uh, and particularly teed that up for me. So the four things that he said were evident in the Welsh revival were confession of sin. It was a very dominant thing. Though even the local press noted weeping, wailing, restitution as part of genuine confession of sin before God. If there are sins or, uh, at the present or sins in the past not confessed, he went on to say, we cannot have the spirit. Therefore, we must search and ask the Spirit to search us. Where is the repentance of sin? In our church, in the Church of England, in our land. It is one of the first marks of revival, that conviction of sin. Which went on second, he said, to a practical outworking, if there is something doubtful in our life, it must be removed. Um, we saw little hints of that, didn't we, with J. John's Just Ten, you know, when, when, when he got to the commandment on um, not stealing and people bringing um, 
what did you call the bins, you know, where you came and brought your knives and the things that you'd stolen in the past, just by way of an act of genuine fleeing from wrongdoing and ideally making recompense with the person you sinned against. So confession of sin, um, removing things in our lives that are offensive to him. Thirdly, total surrender to the spirit so that we ask him to direct and to guide us and to do all that he says and follow all that he does. And then fourthly, which I guess is the thing we mostly think about when we think about revival, is the public proclamation and confession of Christ. And he argued that in the Welsh revival in 1904, 1905, that these four things were very evident uh, in what was going on. And just more briefly, the Hebridean revival in 1949 Two women, Peggy and Christine Smith, both in their 80s, were greatly burdened by the state of the body of Christ in their community in the Hebrides. And they pledged to pray until revival came. They spent hours in prayer, sometimes praying from 10 o'clock in the evening till 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning in their little cottage. They meditated, particularly on Isaiah 44, verse 3 where God says, for I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And when the revival finally came, we've got this famous testimony from uh, outside the police station where he said, I saw a sight I never thought was possible, something I shall never forget. Under the starlit sky, men and women were kneeling everywhere by the roadside, outside the cottages, even behind the peat stacks, crying for God to have mercy upon them. Duncan Campbell says of the Scottish Hebridean revival, 1949-52, revival must be related to holiness and salvation, but it must have a hunger for holiness and, and therefore he proposes that we must give ourselves to a spiritual checkup, asking, do we hunger for holiness? Do we hunger for more of Jesus? Dr. Robert Evans is an expert in medieval history and theology and teaches at Radley College near Oxford. He took us back to the conversion of Constantine in the 4th century and to the rise of Charlemagne in the 8th century, to see what we could learn there about revival. Revival. When we hear the word revival in the history of the church, our, our minds could go in any number of directions, and indeed they will do uh, over the course of this conference. We might think of the Reformation in the 16th century. We might imagine something a bit like this in the 18th century, a good evangelical awakening. Of course, if, like me, you went to an uh, open evangelical theological college, you might associate the word revival. You might think it needs to happen with people who are wearing flip-flops and shorts and have their hands in the air, um, therefore excluding 90% of church history. I suspect that we would not jump to the dark days of the early Middle Ages or even further back to the growing pains of the early church. And there are two reasons, I think, why our minds don't inevitably leap there. One is reasonably straightforward. A revival involves a going back, a, a repeating of something that has gone before. Um, Hollywood reboots. You couldn't reboot Star Wars until Star Wars had actually been made. Um, and obviously in those early centuries, we, we sort of hadn't had the full original version worked out yet. 
Um, and of course, when we look at the later revivals, they are often looking back to the early church as the standard against which to be measured. That is definitely true of the reformers. The second reason why we tend to, to stay more modern and not go further back, it, it's more complex and it's more of a, of a hunch. I suspect that we naturally associate revival with movements that are closest to our own experiences. Um, when we turn to the past, we inevitably look for people like us. Um, so we jump to the re reformers, we jump to Count Cranmer or, or Wilberforce because they are familiar, they are recognisable. Um, and so we think, when we hear revival, we probably think of a scene much like this one, of, of preachers standing in the fields, addressing crowds, people talking about their hearts being strangely warmed and everyone toddling off to abolish slavery. This is perfectly reasonable and nothing to be ashamed of. I like Augustus Top Lady almost as much as Lee does. But this does present the classic challenge of church history. Do we miss something important or, or simply edifying about earlier generations simply because it doesn't look like what we expect? Is our conversation with our past, our, our learning from those who've gone before us, impeded when they don't look like 21st century evangelicals or because they don't fulfill the criteria of the Bebbington quadrilateral. And I think with revival, that's definitely the case. And, and I hope to show that there were revivals in those first thousand years after Pentecost, revivals from which we can take encouragement, even guidance, which I think can prompt useful conversations for us, um, and which we would miss because they don't conform in the detail to our own culture in the here and now. Before diving in, though, I want to think a little bit about categories, and this will almost certainly repeat Simon's talk, which I, uh, which I missed earlier, but uh, that's no bad thing, because I'm sure it was very good. Um, if we are not looking for George Whitfield lookalikes, what are we looking for? And in this, I've been very helped by John Webster, uh, Culture of Theology. That's a book, Lee. Um, yeah. Um, so he wasn't a church historian per se, Webster, um, but I think his, his theology did, does a lot to encourage us to think about what the church is, particularly in relation to God. Um, one seemingly obvious point, which is one of those, he keeps saying things that when, in retrospect, you think, well, yes, of course that's obvious, but I wasn't thinking that until I read you, read you putting it like that. He makes the point that the church shares its shape with the life of the Christian individual. And that's quite a good quote on the screen. So the church has the same qualities, patterns of existence that we all do as Christian individuals. So, so the shape of what it all looks like. Um, firstly, that means conversion, the making alive of that which is dead. In Latin, revivere, re-aliving, revivifying. So when we look for revival in church history, we are dealing with the same categories that we would use to speak of the conversion of individuals. Calling, conviction, repentance, faith, holiness. So, so to quote, Christian culture is thus characterised by a pattern of overthrow and re-establishment. Being in this culture means simultaneously being put to death and made alive. So this is about more than simply individuals converting or the success of missionary efforts. It's about examining the church's past with spiritual as well as merely social or institutional categories, which is what we will use when we are only reading histories written by secular historians. 
And as we shall see, there are plenty throughout the first millennium who thought about the church and her experience within these spiritual categories, who understood their collective life to have undergone conviction and sanctification. That's the first thing. The second point is probably even more obvious, which is who gives the Christian and the church this particular shape, who guides this trajectory. Um, Well, it's the sovereign work of God in the power of the Spirit through the lordship of the risen Christ. So Christian culture, sorry, it was Webster again. Christian culture is characterized by a pattern of overthrow and reestablishment because it is caught up in Christ's sanctifying work. So any examination of revival in church history needs to consider its place in the economy of God's grace, what God does with his creation and his people. And again, this is less about seeing the church as an institution that is either corrupt or functional. It's about seeing the church as something that owes its entire origin and derives its particular configuration from the providence of God. Now, it's worth saying here, I think this is an important sort of point that comes out of it, we do not turn to church history to find a how-to guide for revival. Ultimately, we turn to church history to see that the life of the church comes about not by chance, but by God's fatherly hand. We look at revival to better understand the patterns of life, the convictions of thought through which God brings that life about, to be encouraged in our anxieties and give give praise ultimately in our understanding. That's the theory. Uh, been a great time, good fellowship, great music, great teaching. Uh, great to have a positive topic of revival in a time of such gloom within the ceiling. It's been our first conference, absolutely brilliant. Loved the, uh, the talks, the inspiration, learning more about um, reformers. Dr Andrew Atherston teaches church history at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford and has published extensively on the history of evangelicalism. His favourite figure is Bishop J.C. Ryle. Well, it's, it is a delight to be, uh, to be with you. Um, and uh, I'm sorry for the false advertising uh, for this, this address. When, when uh, Lee said, come and uh, talk to us about Ryle, uh, Conference on Revival, the most obvious thing to do was to get his Christian leaders of the last century, Ryle's uh, pen portraits of the evangelical revival of the 18th century. Have you read that book? It's uh, one of his classics. Uh, George Whitfield's, uh, Ryle's a great fan, so is Lee. Um, this, this, this kind of Puritan um, with, with a revival twist in the 18th century. Um, and so I thought, well, that, that's straightforward. On our Tuesday morning, we could just sort of uh, look at the lessons from that volume, what it has to say to us about revival. I've gone back to it in the last couple of weeks. It doesn't say very much about revival at all, surprisingly. Um, actually, that book is mostly a study of ministerial usefulness. Uh, it's mostly a study in the power of evangelical preaching. Um, so if there is a lesson from his, uh, his, his pen portraits, it's about being, um, uh, being a bold, clear evangelical preacher. And he says uh, when preaching is taken from the church, uh, the church diminishes, but when preaching is restored to the church, then God blesses that church um, and revives it. But I, I thought probably we'd been on enough preaching conferences. You don't really want to... Um, a, a talk about preaching this morning. So we're going to scatter a bit more widely 
uh, not just in the revival pen portraits, but more of Ryle's writings um, and his tracts about conversion uh, and the sovereign move of the Holy Spirit uh, that he continues to pray for um, and uh, some of his teaching on how that impacts how you, how you think about revival um, and especially how you think about genuine and uh, authentic conversion and a move of the Spirit um, and what it might look like. Uh, here is the beardless figure, uh, 18 years old, uh, Eton School, um, and uh, you remember his, his background, um, part of the, the elite, uh, good education, sportsman, cricketer, uh, debater, definitely a, a leader in that sort of context, uh, plans to enter his family bank up in Macclesfield, uh, plans to become an MP and use his oratory uh, to persuade perhaps change hearts in the, in the Houses of Parliament, um, and, uh, and goes up, you remember, to Oxford in the 1830s. What is happening in Oxford in the 1830s? There is a revival taking place um, of a rather different sort, uh, the Tractarian Revival, uh, which, was, which was moving. And lots of young men being grabbed by this teaching of John Henry Newman and Edward Pusey and uh, John Keeble, um, and others at the time. But uh, Ryle finds he's not taken into that revival movement. He discovers as a teenager uh, evangelicalism uh, and evangelical conversion, and it's the, the turning moment um, of his life. Let me remind you of that before we think about what he has to say about the need for conversion, uh, the need for authentic um, spiritual witness. Along with those photograph albums, emerged out of this box in this house in Hampshire. The family didn't even know they possessed it. Uh, the, author, uh, the, the handwritten um, autobiography um, of Ryle from the 1870s, which he dictated to his, his children. Um, and uh, it was one of those, those moments, if, if like me, you, you love history hunting, um, to come across this manuscript was a, um, a, a real pleasure. It had been in circulation in, in sort of boulderized form, but here's the uh, the handwritten version, and he tells us about this move of the, the Spirit uh, coming into his life at Oxford uh, when he was 21 years old. This is how he describes it. Up to the time that I was about 21 years old, I think I really had no true religion at all. I don't mean to say I didn't go to church and was not a professed Christian, but I think I was perfectly careless, thoughtless, ignorant, and indifferent about my soul and a world to come. I certainly never said my prayers or read a word of my Bible from the time I was seven till the time I was 21. In short, if I died before I was 21, if there is such a thing as being lost forever in hell, which I do not doubt, I certainly should have been lost forever. I never plunged into the immoralities that many young men do. I was never led into drunkenness and gambling and theatre going and race going and betting and other things which young men run into. I really had no taste for them. But I really was altogether without God in the world. And though many thought me a very proper, moral, respectable young man, I was totally unfit to die. Here's someone that you, you look on from the outside uh, and he looks like uh, the impeccable Christian. Not only is he professing faith in Christ, standing up and saying the creed, uh, not only is he regularly in attendance at church every single week, one of the keenest members of the congregation, he's always there, 
uh, in his pew. But actually, uh, you see some of the, uh, the fruits of that in his life. At least um, he's not running into decadent sin in the way uh, others are doing. Um, and yet Ryle says, I didn't know God. I didn't know the Holy Spirit. I wasn't a Christian. Um, and this is where revival begins. Uh, revival begins at home. Revival really is uh, conversions multiplies um, and uh, often beginning uh, with the church. There is um, there's some rivalry in Oxford to decide uh, where uh, Ryle's um, turning moment um, took place. Um, if you ask friends at St. Ebbs in Oxford, they'll say it's, you know, definitely took place at St. Ebbs. Um, some friends at St. Aldate's think, no, it's more likely to be at St. Aldate's. Uh, he was an undergrad at Christchurch after all. This is, uh, this I think though, uh, is where it took place. Carfax Church, it's been knocked down now, uh, right in the middle of town uh, in, in Corn Market. Uh, one Sunday, June of uh, 1837 it was, turns up to church and he says, I can't remember anything about the minister. I can't tell you anything uh, even about the preaching. Uh, all he remembers was a text from Scripture being read. Ephesians chapter, chapter 2 uh, and a particular emphasis on those, those words from, uh, from verses 8 and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not from works uh, so that no one can boast. And Ryle says when he heard Scripture speak to him, not, not the preacher, but when he heard the Word of God speak to him and the Holy Spirit took it, um, his life was, uh, was transformed from that moment onwards. Before that time, I was dead in sins and on the road, high road to hell. And from that time, I became alive and had a hope of heaven. And nothing to my mind can account for it. Here's the point. Nothing to my mind can account for it but the free, sovereign grace of God. What accounts for revival when it takes place through the church um, and across a nation? Uh, nothing but the free, sovereign grace of God, uh, the sovereign will of God in action. May I bring to your attention a new book from Church Society called Reforming Church, written by George Crowder. The subtitle, How God is at Work in Revitalization Ministry. So this is a book written about this kind of ministry of revitalizing churches in the Church of England. It's written with insight, with humor and a depth of experience and gives the highs and lows of this kind of ministry as well as sage advice about bringing a church ministry to life. And also at the end of this book, there's a chapter from Paul Darnington on evangelical ministry in non evangelical parishes so i commend this book to you it's available on the church society website give it a look and even more perhaps give it a read it's been a great few days being reminded of god's power and our dependence on him for all that we need i found it a real challenge thinking about revival and it's stretching my faith that God really can bring revival in our time. Eddie Scracefield is a minister in Blackheath in southeast London and a keen reader of Jonathan Edwards, the great 18th century preacher and theologian. Edwards wrote extensively on the revivals of his day, and here are some of the key lessons that Eddie said we could learn from them according 
to Edwards. Here are the quick eight lessons that I think that we can learn. They're not as long. Firstly, revivals are the work of God. We've talked about that quite a lot. Um, revivals are, are, are about God's spirit um, uh, and uh, him doing the work of God by the, the word of God, by the power of God. Um, some, like the later Charles Finney, argued that although revival is a work of God, you can somehow work it up and pray it in. You've probably heard that um, phrase. Edwards insists on praying for a revival, absolutely. In fact, he wrote one of the longest titles of a, of a sermon. Listen to this one. A humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of God's people throughout the world in extraordinary prayer for revival of religion and advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth. <laughs> That's the title of one of his sermons. <laughs> It's a plea for revival prayer. We must pray. Uh, secondly, the revival had a wide impact, not only personal renewal and conversion, but also within the wider church and the community. Uh, it's the, the presence of God giving power to his word on sin and on grace. It's the Holy Spirit generating a response to the word, if you like, by sensitizing the soul to God's reality with greater power and intensity than was the case before. In other words, revival expresses itself in new conversions, people who'd never been, had anything to do with God becoming Christians. It expresses it as itself in sleepy Christians being wakened up and it in nominal believers who think they have faith coming to faith. It's seen in the acceleration of things. Revival is a time of acceleration of, of the normal things of God's grace, of repentance and of faith, of praise and prayer, of love and obedience, of joy and holiness that overflows in, out from the church into the wider community and beyond. Thirdly, God is not absent, we could think, into, into very sort of deistic views of, of God. But thirdly, God is not absent when revival is absent. And here it's worth hearing probably Edward's closest thing you get to a definition of revival um, in the history of redemption, which is an interesting work. But he says this about revival. From the fall of man to, to our day, the work of redemption has mainly been carried on by remarkable communications of the Spirit of God. Though there be a more constant influence of God's Spirit, always in some degree attending the work of the church, yet the way in which the greatest things have been done towards carrying on this work always have been by remarkable infusions in outpouring at special season. <laughs> It's a long way of saying God is at work all the time, but there are special seasons when his infusion of his spirit is at work. And what he's saying in the history of redemption is that that's what you see in the history of redemption. That is what you see in scripture. That is what you see, what we've been seeing through history as well. So we're never to think that God is somehow absent for long periods of time. Fourthly, Revivals come on the back of sound doctrine. Um, when you read Edwards, it doesn't read like a lot of sermons I give necessarily um, or you give. It's, 
it's highly it's it's that's, that makes it sound like I don't preach doctrinally. I've got to watch what I say, but it's it's highly doctrinal in the way that he approaches it. Um, it is all about the fall of man, the great doctrines, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the, the means of salvation, of justification by faith alone, and the regeneration of the spirits about those big doctrines of holiness and God's grace and assurance at work. He um, uh, talks about them all the time. That's the foundation. Fifthly, unity is not some sort of prerequisite for revival. This is quite interesting in that um, there is a notion that goes around that in order for revival to happen, we have to have unity first. Well, certainly throughout Edward's time in Northampton, he was dealing with divisions all the time, not necessarily within his church, but with, with the congregational churches around. He often spoke out about um, issues. and there, was, there were issues of division um, going on. And then there was the divisions about the revivals as well, as some called it emotionalism. Uh, and he had to contend with those questions. Um, but it, it, what I'm saying is it's, it's noticeable that the revivals still happened, even though things weren't all hunky-dory. There was lots of um, issues. So unity is not somehow something that has to come first before you have revival. <clears throat> the sixth thing that I think we learn is that Edward used situations and events for revival preaching. First wave was on the back of the death of a young man in the bloom of his youth in Northampton. Now, we may need to be careful how we do that, absolutely, pastorally, <coughs> but he took advantages of those events. Um, and, and as I was thinking about that, you know, I do wonder whether we do that enough. You know, sometimes I'm so fixated on my nice packaged sermon series that I've put together for the next six months. And therefore I can't, can't kind of come out of that. Well, Edwards would look at what was happening in the world. He'd look at what's happening in his church and you preach into those events and those situations. I think that's quite an interesting challenge for us. I was thinking about it in the context of, of COVID-19. How well did we do or didn't do in that context of preaching into the situation? I think Edwards would have had things to teach us on that. The seventh thing, revivals are not the answer to all our problems. In Northampton, Edward saw two spells of revival, um, but they came with great blessing, but they also came with great upheaval at the same time. Problems of deadness and sleepiness go, but they're replaced with new problems such as disorderly worship, uh, disorderly imagination to, to deal with, fanaticism, there were wild thinking going on. So it's, it's not all that it's going to solve. You're going to, it's actually going to create new problems. That doesn't mean to say I don't want revival. I'd rather have those problems, but they're different problems. The, the first wave, as I say, ended with the suicide of a well-regarded member of the community. Massive pastoral fallout. And a lot of that contributed eventually to his um, leaving um, Northampton. And then finally, 
the final thing, the final thing I've been thinking about is that we are always to weigh and test revival. I think that's one of the things that I have taken most from Jonathan Edwards and reading things like religious affections is just how he weighs and tests everything. He was a a critical thinker and analysed awakenings uh, carefully Um, and he did it rigorously. Um, The four major works that I mentioned, they were not just defences and justifications of the work of God, of why this is a true revival. They were also um, critiques of them. And I think it's probably fair to say, as you go through reading them, and I'd really encourage you to do it, as you, as you read through them, it's probably fair to say he gets a little bit more conservative as he goes on, till he gets to the religious affections. A faithful narrative really just begins with sort of just describing what has happened. And then by the time you get to the affections, he's being a little bit more looking back He wanted people to know the testimonies of people converted. Um, And we mentioned this early. And he said that if there is one thing that I know of, that God has made such a means of promoting the work among us as the news of other people's conversions. I, I think we should reflect on that as something we should be looking to, sharing conversion stories. Because nothing will promote the gospel quite like that. It's quite interesting that Edward says that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you were able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.